Familiar Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have with me today regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hello, Olga. We are actually recording this in the evening for once, but I don't think either of us remembered to bring our happy hour cocktails. You know, just as you said evening, I'm like... Where are our cocktails? And it is a party because it's been a while since it's just been the two of us mm-hmm. um, having a conversation. So we really should have broken out the party hats and the martini yeah. glasses. Or the it's high quite an glasses. anniversary to be celebrating. So maybe that's maybe that's part of the the song part of our forgetting. Yes. <laughs> and for folks who are tuning in, the anniversary that Emily and I are talking about is two things. One, the legislative session is sort of at its midpoint, or what's traditionally thought of as its midpoint. But here we are in 2021, where this time last year, around uh, second week in March, the pandemic was really just starting to reach Vermont. Mm -hmm. And we were starting to talk about what needed to close down. We hadn't quite closed down like the schools. And that sort of bigger institutions but we were having those conversations and now here we are uh, a year later what's it feel like for you Emily um you know it was February 13th that we all went home from the legislature that's right um and that's March 13th actually sorry about that March 13th um one of the things that I've commented on before is I've really like completely lost track of times and days and weeks um, which is honestly not something I've always had a very good grasp on. I'm one of those people that it takes me like months into the year before I can write the right year, you know, on a check or something. But, um, well, if it makes you feel any better, <laughs> you said February 13th and I heard March 13th. Great. Good. So <laughs> we're fine. We're great. Um, so I feel not quite ready to reflect, I think. Um, I think that's how I feel, that there, there's this momentum around it being almost over, or some people acting as if it is over, which would be sort of the time for reflection. But I still feel deep in the mix of it all, um, in trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to support folks who are struggling, in, you know, essentially living quarantined. Um, and so... I can almost hold on to those conversations that we had early on about things we might learn through this pandemic or the cracks being revealed. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not quite ready to come out the other side yet. Thank you. You know, for me, I've been reflecting on this because I, and I've told some, some folks this story, but in recent weeks, I've been watching a friend's cat and they have commercial television, which I do not have at home. And I've been catching up on TV shows when I'm hanging out with the cat and was caught really off guard by my reaction to shows that were filmed in 2020 and were actually in somewhat real time dealing with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And many of these shows are, are filmed in large cities. Mm-hmm. And so they're showing morgues filled with with bodies and, and that sort of thing. And for me, 
I have been so immersed in our work and my work as a journalism, as a journalist, I haven't really sat with my emotions. Mm-hmm. And watching these TV shows, I and and Vermont has had compared to other places a much easier time of it. Mm-hmm. And really sorting sitting with almost a sense of survivor's guilt. Mm-hmm. Watching these TV shows and um so for me, even though the pandemic is not over, I feel emotionally I'm at a different place with it mm-hmm. than I was this time last year. Oh, yeah. 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 I um, met with some teachers from our local teachers union earlier today and was, you know, just really sitting with how much they have navigated this year with the insight that they've had into families, struggles, and um, just the incredible both flexibility and challenges that kids have faced. Um, And we were talking a lot about, you know, this emphasis that's put on learning loss, but the real incredible opportunities for emotional growth and resiliency that some kids might have experienced during this time. But I'm not, I guess I'm not really ready to be grateful for any of those lessons yet. No. 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 And it's fine if you, you are not. Yes. We, one, one thing I am feeling as I'm, as I'm sitting and listening to conversations at different meetings that I'm covering, and they're talking kind of what you said about teachers having insights into families and what, what their struggles are. To me, it's really come home how sort of um, Jenga style we have put together our lives Mm -hmm. and just how much more flexible our systems need to be Mm -hmm. rather than these blocks precariously sitting together. They need to be much more fluid and much more flexible and quicker to catch people. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know about you, but just navigating everything, I'm pretty pretty tired, <laughs> and and I don't have small children, or mm-hmm. or a spouse or anyone else that mm-hmm. I directly have to make sure is alive every day. <laughs> you know, like yeah. a like a, fa- a larger family does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, um, before the pandemic, Senator Ballant used to sometimes joke that the whole state was sort of held together with duct tape and bailing twine. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's a joke. I think that's a, a true statement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she would only say it in sort of the lighter moments of difficulty. But yes, it is a true statement. Um, that's are all the I think all the best jokes are true statements. But um <laughs> why we relate to them yes but there's something about this nimbleness that we sort of I think in some ways realize that because we're so small you know we could act fast there was a really amazing um, piece on VPR this morning around 7 45 I have no idea I guess it was probably morning edition um, that was about housing and homelessness, um, which is a topic we've talked about a lot in the show. Mm-hmm. But really, like, you know, again, remembering how fast we were able to move when we needed to move fast on something yeah. and what things we prioritize to move fast on and what things we don't. And 
when we're able to be nimble and that there's something about being held together with duct tape and bailing twine that it makes it easier to reinvent yourself and we could make the most of that more often. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Good point. So as you're, as we're entering pandemic at the, at the year mark, what's happening at the state level now that a year in, I hope you're somewhat used to zoom meetings and committee meetings. And I, I do feel at compared to this time last year, things do feel a little more solid mm-hmm. than, than they did at this time last year. You know, I think we're all a lot more um, technologically savvy for much of last year. We um, couldn't all have committee meetings at the same time because legislative staff, um, IT staff needed to do so much backend support work mm-hmm. to have committees sort of function in Zoom. And now everyone sort of understands it well enough and the, you know, the committee staff understand it well enough that we can all just sort of keep our regular committee schedules. But you, it's, you know, it's hard enough to be in a meeting for eight hours a day in real life. It's really hard in Zoom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't pay attention as well. Um, we just can't. It's not that we don't want to. No one can. And so um, we're still absolutely doing our work. And some of that work is work we sort of would have needed to do regardless. And some of that is very, very pandemic focused. And it's really a combination of the two right now. And then so much is, again, you know, similar to, say, April of last year, really up in the air because we have this huge federal package that's about to come through, which is incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. But again, don't quite know what it is. Right, because not only does the money have to reach the state, but the federal government still has to come up with the rules of how yes. states can use that money. Yes. And um, some, you know, there's a lot spelled out in statute, but there's a lot that's not spelled out in statute that needs to get figured out before it gets sent. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes lately has figured out while it's being sent, which makes it even more confusing. Mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about recovery. Um, You know, we have talked over and over again about, as you said, the cracks in the system that Mm -hmm. COVID has highlighted. In, In a news email that you recently sent out or a newsletter you sent out, you talked about some of the key goals of at least the Democratic caucus, if I understood Mm -hmm. that correctly, like a COVID recovery plan, um, more affordable housing opportunities for families, uh, invest in a state childcare system, expanding broadband and crafting policies with a lens towards racial and social equity. Mm -hmm. How many of those systems or or legislation that you're trying to craft now is directly because of COVID and how many of those are trying to meet longer term or solve longer term issues? I think almost all of them are trying to solve longer term issues that because of COVID we have had a renewed understanding of the need for Mm -hmm. um, extra attention paid to and have funding available for. So certainly, you know, I've been working to 
in the early care and education sort of advocacy system for quite a while that, you know, I had quite a few jobs before I ran for office related to that. And it's been a priority for my for me in the legislature and a priority for so many other legislators. And, you know, the Let's Grow Kids campaign is a very successful advocacy campaign. But it wasn't until the pandemic that it really seemed like the majority of Vermonters were totally clear about how much we need childcare for people to be able to just function in the world um, and how essential the people who work in those systems are, right? Right, right. And so there's an, a sort of a political availability in the moment as more people understand something. I think that's absolutely true for broadband. I think we've had sort of politicians in Vermont running on the need for connectivity for long time. Um, you know, I used to do last mile connectivity internationally before I moved back to Brattleboro. And that's one of the reasons I came back to Brattleboro. Um, it's, I think, one of the reasons Laura Sibelia ran for office. It's, you know, it's been a long term issue. <laughs> And lots of people have tried to solve it, but because of the pandemic, all of a sudden we realized that, oh yeah, it's true that kids can't learn and people can't access healthcare without the internet. And somehow it's just become, it was true before, but it's become truer. Mm -hmm. mm. And it's the same thing, you know, housing is healthcare. That's been a tagline of homeless services advocacy for decades and decades um you know since reagan i think but we like we actually understand that now somehow so i would say that the majority of the priorities that we're focusing on would fall into that category and same thing with you know um racial equity mm -hmm. work right like there's been those of us who have been working on this issue for a very long time and then something happened during the pandemic that Black Lives Matter moved into the full general consciousness and people really started to grapple with that individually. So mm -hmm. so that'll be interesting once the, the pandemic is over mm -hmm. and we've all moved into some what a, more of a recovery phase. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how do organizations and or the, the state communicate future needs and, and be able to harness that uh, momentum that we've had mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And uh, yeah, that's a puzzle because one thing the pandemic also created, at least in Vermont, was this sense that we're all in this together. Yeah, and if we sort of look to history... Um, and the Roaring Twenties as the last time we had a reaction to something like this. Mm. Um, it's a very different political moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so many different political moments. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. As far as some of the top priorities that the Democratic Caucus is working on. What, for you, is the top of the top? Oh. Um. It's funny, there are... 
some pieces of legislation that I'm extra focused on because of Brattleboro Mm -hmm. um, that I feel like the caucus isn't going to fully carry. And so I have to put them at the top of my top. Um, Mm -hmm. So all the opiate legislation that we talked about last week or um, a bill that's hopefully moving through human services before crossover to create an office of the child advocate. Those are huge things for me that I think Brattleboro desperately needs more than most other places in the state even. And then sort of top of the top in terms of caucus priorities um, is really these issues around economic equity. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's always the social infrastructure. So childcare for me is straight social infrastructure. It helps women access the economy. It helps families thrive including non-women members of families. It, most awkward sentence, um, (laughs) it, and it enables employers to further invest in their employees because there's sort of more space for everyone. And so those policies are always the ones that sort of rise to the top for me. And I would put affordable housing in that same category Mm -hmm. um, because those are things that rise to the top for me because they have so many sort of follow-on effects, both immediate satisfaction from for people who are struggling as well as these like big multiplier effects throughout the economy and throughout the communities. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to me as a society, how do we come up with our priorities? Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's ever one answer to that question. Mm-hmm. And I think you just hit on it so so well that there are some things you're carrying because of Brattleboro, but then also how things knit together. Mm-hmm. And it makes me wonder just what you were saying now, because why not throw a spanner into everything? The committee system that yeah. the state house uses, mm-hmm. I can see how it's helpful because it allows people to focus, mm-hmm. but does but it can also create silos. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering. Is there a way that that needs to operate better? Yeah. Um, Well, one, I also want to name the fact that climate change um, is not at the top of my list right now, mostly because a lot of our work is sort of waiting to hear what the climate council that we created in our last biennium's legislation will advise. Right. Um, So we're sort of mid-process on that and a little bit of a holding pattern beyond the Transportation Modernization Act, um, which we can talk about some other time. So the committee structure, it's interesting now that I'm in a leadership position on ways and means, I am, um, which is sort of, gosh, I want to call it a traffic light, um, which I don't think is the right choice of metaphor, but. But we'll start there. We're going to start there because all of these, you know, all of these bills, basically, you know, they come out of committee from their silos and then they go into ways and means and appropriations from there. And so I'm able to sort of see the intersection between these pieces, um, get to touch a lot of different things. And there are places, um, I was interviewed by Greg, who works at the Manchester Journal. Journal? Is that mm-hmm. what it's called? The Manchester Journal, which is also owned by the same sort of family that owns the Reformer. Yes. Um, and 
he was asking me why a certain bill didn't come to my committee. And I was like, and I sort of started going through this idea that like, well, almost any bill could go to almost any committee because the world is a complex place and things touch on everything, right? Um, and so, I'm, this is a very long-winded answer. Um, I think because of COVID, we've actually done a better job with joint hearings than we would otherwise. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. So when we were in the state house to organize a joint hearing, you have to reserve a larger room. Mm-hmm. And the committee assistants make special, um, like, little plaques that go in front of your seat. Um, and it's just, like, a much more formal affair than just being in a regular committee meeting. It, to the point of a little bit of silliness. But it's a lot of work for a committee assistant to organize a, to commi- a joint hearing. But over Zoom, it's actually easier for everyone. <laughs> it's one less meeting to organize. And so we've been doing a much better job of that. Um, we've been doing a much better job sort of hopping into each other's committee meetings. Mm-hmm. When we have sort of an issue from another committee, we tend to have someone from that committee join us. Um, and I think that's been true sort of throughout the building. And we're hosting more joint sessions between the House and the Senate via Zoom than we would have otherwise when our different calendars make things really hard in real life, but are not as hard via Zoom. So hoping that we'll carry that together a little bit. I think there are always places that we can look at the silos better mm-hmm. um, or even just look at jurisdictions. You know, it's still terribly confusing that opioids and substance use is in human services and not in healthcare, yeah. um, and so I think that sort of continues to be difficult for decision making. But there's historical reasons why it happened. Um, also, I do think that our speaker is doing sort of a fairly diligent job making sure that committees are communicating with each other um, through because we have to be more formal and conscious about it. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the lessons that we're going to carry through from Zoom, too, from virtual legislating. Because when we're in real life, there's just sort of an assumption that all of the information moves via magic. (laughs) Um, And it does. It really does. Like, it moves through the hallways with its own laws of physics, um, through lobbyists, through encounters in hallways, through overhearing things, through walking past agendas. Information just moves. But when we're operating virtually, it doesn't. And so practices actually needed to be developed and thought about and become more conscious. And so I'm hoping we'll carry that into the future too. Too bad you couldn't watermark verbal information because it'd be such a great sociological like examination of the state house. How does information move? It would be. There's um, a friend of mine who actually went to Marlboro and SIT and then Harvard and now... I'm not sure where he is, but he just published a book, um, Damon Santola. And he um, was interviewed on, he was on Hidden Brain, that NPR show. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's exactly what he studies, is how sort of information moves through social networks. But he does it essentially like through studying Twitter or something like that, which is an interest. It's not quite a one-to-one stand-in for humanity. It's still fascinating. It is fascinating. Absolutely yes. fascinating. Mm-hmm. So we have just about five minutes before we have to go to break. What for you? So we're at the midpoint. We're getting close to crossover Mm -hmm. week. What do you think is really key for uh, listeners to understand right now about what's happening at the state house and what's next for all of you? There's so much building up right now. 
So, you know, next week we're going to have dozens and dozens and dozens of bills that are all voted out. Mm-hmm. And so right now it's voted really out of committee, voted out of committee and then voted out of the floor. But it's really hard this week to be able to tell what's going to make it across the finish line next week or not. And it's not about whether or not they're going to pass on the floor. It's about whether or not they're actually going to be able to make it out of committee um, because the work is able to be finished in committee. Because we are not as sort of efficient as we would be in real life in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And so chairs are still sort of navigating their own understanding of their timelines and their ability to move things. And so it's um, next week we're going to sort of really understand what bills are going to make it across the finish line and what isn't. Mm -hmm. Well, what you just hit on is something so important for listeners to understand that so often the glamorous spotlight is shown on floor discussions Mm -hmm. or floor votes. Mm-hmm. Which, while they are important, most of the work happens in the committee. And yes, that's where and things is, are really shaped. Yes, and it, I think this is really an important difference between the House and the Senate. Um, in the Vermont Senate, like bill, you know, amendments pass, things shift. It's much more dynamic. Occasionally, bills don't pass, um, very occasionally. But in the House, it's almost all theater. And most things are on the floor. Most things are pretty totally decided before they get to the floor and are not going to change from there. It's very unusual that something would change on the floor. Hmm. And so all of the action really is in committee if you want to understand how decisions are made. So why is that that there are difference between the Senate and the House? Is it just because the Senate's smaller? Um, There's all kinds of, you know, I'm sure someone's written a book about this. I mean, it's mostly that the Senate's smaller. Okay. And they represent larger districts. And so um, they tend to have less party allegiance. Gotcha. In a state more that sort doesn't of always independent have a lot of party allegiance, yes. And just be more um, independent minded okay. and be sort of navigating with each other and forming smaller coalitions. And um, things don't have to be as fiercely organized as they do in the house when you have less people at the table that is interesting mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um do you still like being in the house or would you prefer to be in the senate oh olga what a funny question it just um, kind of popped into my mind they do that i sometimes. love i love being in the house um I think maybe just because it's what I know now and I've become very attached to my work and my committee and the, the sort of messy horde of it all. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And I love how um, the house has a lot of people that just like keep their head down and do their work. Mm-hmm. And there's something really remarkable about that kind of public servant. Thank you for that. You know, one reason I was curious is because I, in part, see you as someone who really gets things done and likes to keep moving the ball forward. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, I could see how uh, a more nimble, maybe a little more dynamic environment like the Senate might be attractive. Not that mm-hmm. I'm saying you have to run for the Senate. I'm just talking Thanks, about the Olga. different way the, the work flows. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also really like getting into the deep nitty-gritty of policy, and the Senate doesn't have as much time for that. This is true. Yeah, yeah if you're going to be 
wonky and geeky might as well really be allowed to be wonky and geeky yes yes (laughs) the montpelier happy hour on wvew 107.7 lp bradabro will return in a moment thank you LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on the Montpelier Happy Hour Facebook page. The podcast is available on iTunes and Apple Podcasts, if you want to call it that. You can also find us on BCTV and Emily's YouTube channel. Did I forget anything, Emily? I don't know. I mean, I guess we're on Facebook. And we're just everywhere. Did you name the website? I did not. Thank you. The Montpelier Happy Hour dot Captivate dot FM. Wild. That is us right there. And if anyone's listening and you want to just go check us out in iTunes, it's very, it looks very fancy. All gives it, it a very nice job. Thank you very much. And we have an awesome logo from <laughs> Sarah Adam, who just it's makes really me happy nice every logo. time I look at it. <laughs> I know. It's really incredible. I love it. It makes me feel very legitimate in the world. Yes. We feel like grown-ups. Yes. So let's talk about some legislation. I know a lot is still playing out with mm-hmm. the COVID recovery plan, but the part that stood out to me that mm-hmm. you f- folks are all working on is trying, and I think this goes to your comment about economic equity, mm-hmm. making sure that the recovery happens across the entire state yeah, and not just in pockets. Mm-hmm. So do we have a thought on how that's going to happen? Um, you know, I know the Commerce Committee is sort of working on their big economic development strategy right now, and I don't know the details of it yet. Um, some thoughts I have that I think are really sort of important to note when we think about what it means to have a recovery that works in all the counties is um, that we've, you know, we're seeing a big influx of people, and I think we're going to continue to see that as people really even as the pandemic ends i think there are still going to be that sort of zest to be in a cleaner fresher safer place i think mm-hmm. that sort of the trauma and fear feelings of the pandemic are going to stick around for a while and going to lead to certain decisions and likely that migration is going to be concentrated in specific places mm-hmm. probably chittenden county being one of them um, and maybe a few other counties and so there's that and what impact that has on the economy and the communities there um and being mindful of that there's what tourism will do which is very different from migration Mm -hmm. um and how communities that are entirely dependent on tourism might pull their way out of this um what consolidation is going to look like and then our main streets we have seen you know our revenues as a state have stayed high because we also tax internet sales but that doesn't mean that our downtowns are doing well at all. Yeah, retail. And it doesn't COVID. mean that we're going to go back to shopping in our downtowns. Once the habit is formed, it is hard to break. And so what what do new downtowns look like where, mm-hmm. you know, people are living and working but not necessarily shopping, for instance, you know? Um, what does it look like if you move the 
you know, more office type businesses down to the first floor and you move housing onto the second floor and the third floor. You know, there's all kinds of questions like that, which are questions we've been having about the state of Vermont and Vermont's communities and economy for a very long time. Um, but this has really expedited all of those difficult decisions. Are there co any conversations happening around office places, offices in general, and maybe a shift to permanent remote work? Are, are there conversations about that happening as of well? Of course. Um, and some of that is about um, what the tax liability looks like. That's the kind of conversations that I'm having. Mm -hmm. um, when people are, you know, working for a business in another state and living in this state and how states negotiate that with each other. There's a big lawsuit between New Hampshire and Massachusetts about that right now, actually. Interesting. Right. Very exciting for tax geeks. <laughs> um, and then, <laughs> you know, there's absolutely the conversation about, you know, like lunch restaurants who survive on people working downtown, but we have so few people who actually live in our downtowns that might support those lunch restaurants if they were working from home because those aren't how our downtowns are structured. And we have this tremendous need for housing. Mm -hmm. We have a tremendous need for folks, not just who are, you know, I think usually when we talk about housing, we're talking about homelessness, but we have a lot of people who desperately want to downsize. Right. And so downtowns who have more of sort of a live, a living communities vibe can be really helpful for that kind of work too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people are looking for more walkable communities and the ability to live and walk to their whatever services they need, grocery mm -hmm. stores, what have you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm I'm curious to to see how that develops and and I have to say that's one conversation that as far as making sure the recovery works across the entire state and not just in pockets mm -hmm. is something that I feel has been highlighted. It was, it was being talked about before the pandemic, mm -hmm. but it seems to have hit home a little bit more yeah. and become more part of the conversation mm -hmm. over this past year, at least to me. No. And there are, you know, there are little genies that we also can't put back in the bottle. Like we can get take out drinks from restaurants and bars now. Are we really going to stop doing that? I don't know. Well, well, when this pandemic is officially over, we will have to see if we can get takeout drinks and then we'll have a proper happy hour. Yes. <laughs> you touched on housing. Talk to me about some of the efforts in the state house right now around affordable housing. Oh, there's so much. Um, and really hopeful for even more after this big new federal package comes through. So we, you know, in Wyndham County, Brattleboro area alone, we have 200 people who are still living in motels mm -hmm. who were housed fairly immediately when the pandemic started and um, is being paid for with FEMA funds right now, which is, you know, it's not state budget money that's going towards that. And the question is, what happens to those folks? Um, certainly no one can live in a motel forever or they can, but it is far from ideal. And so looking at how we can build housing soon enough for those folks to transition out of motels, but maybe, you know, it wouldn't be fully permanent housing because we're building, you know, projects like the Dale M. Chalet, which was a big part of our COVID recovery, which is um, had some units that were ready for people to move in immediately, 
but has a lot of growth or building potential on that property. Mm-hmm. And so there are a few projects like that in the works that are slowly going to get off the ground. There's also a lot of money that's going into building rehab. Um, some of that is sort of green building and weatherization, mm-hmm. and some of that is just putting you know, units that weren't online back online mm-hmm. um, because our housing stock is old and it's expensive to rehab when it gets, when it falls a little too far behind. And so there's funding for that that's really exciting. Um, it looks like um, a number of different sort of affordable housing and um, building trusts and funds that have historically been underfunded are going to be funded at full levels this year. VHCB, um, the downtown village tax credit, a few things like that. That's sort of, um, we have a lot of one-time money. So there's a lot of sort of opportunities to be spending there. Mm-hmm. And then we're still talking about the fact that we need to find a way to um, make sure that there's more housing available for folks who are, um, say, in like the forty to $70,000 a year range, the forty to $80,000 a year range, which is sort of affordable housing, but not affordable housing, right. um, just housing that people can afford. Yeah. And so that's that's sort of the project that I think people are really trying to think through and haven't come up with a solution for how the state can really um, spark that project. Mm-hmm. But we're looking at that. And I feel like there was one more thing that just, that was there and is now, now gone. And then the other thing is just, you know, there's a lot of people who are in pretty, you know, different financial straits than they were before. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of money from the feds for rental assistance and mortgage assistance right now. Now, remind me, Vermont's uh, eviction uh, moratorium will last, what is it, two weeks beyond the end of the state of emergency? I think it's um, more than a, it's a month plus. Oh, okay, thank you. But mm-hmm. it's not necessarily connected just to the CDC's. No, it's connected to Vermont's declared state of emergency, which is actually in the hands of the governor. Right. Which I just think was so smart for Vermont to do, because me too. I mean, it required a certain level of trust in the governor, um, in us true. trusting the governor, and I'm grateful that that's worked out. Yeah. And I, I find oh, so- I remember the last thing I wanted to say. I'm sorry. Go for it. Um, we've been having these really dynamic conversations for um, what's probably the first time it's become this public a conversation around the wealth gap and housing and land equity for black, indigenous and people of color Vermonters. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's been really interesting because it forces people to think um, not just about those communities, but how wealth is gained and how loans work and who has access to that and who doesn't. And so I think as we work through those issues, it's going to be really important that we're prioritizing Vermonters of color in those conversations. But I think that the changes that we're going to make are going to result in policies that are better for absolutely everyone. It wouldn't surprise me. And that's, you know, sorry, I'm interrupting you again. No, go ahead. That's sort of the theories of change. That's one of the main theories of change when people say like, you do racial equity work first and everything else follows from there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, that roundup, Emily. I, 
I find talking about housing in Vermont pretty interesting because we might give it a label like affordable housing or, or something like that. But the fact is we have housing constraints just across the board that mm-hmm. I would be surprised that I think more people are impacted by housing issues than we even realize. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we've talked before about domestic violence and housing scarcity and how people stay in difficult relationships because of that. Um, I think we have a lot of people who stay in jobs that are really difficult for them because of housing challenges. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's a huge constraint on everything we do. Mm-hmm. And we really need to pull sort of every single lever to make any difference on it. There's not going to be one solution. Right. Now, talk to me a little bit about the goal that, at least in your newsletter, was was worded as invest in a state childcare system. Mm-hmm. To me, that sounds like a childcare system that is managed and operated at the state level and then filters down to the local communities. Am I hearing that correctly? I mean, in some ways, yes. That's what we have now, even. Um we have regulatory control over all of the early care and education providers in the state mm-hmm. at the state level by the Child Development Division, which sits in the Department of Children and Families, which is part of the Agency of Human Services. Which is probably our biggest, it is our yes. biggest department. The Agency of Human agency. Services is absolutely our biggest state agency. And yeah. where, um, you know, that's where health access is. That's where corrections is. That's where, yeah. Um. And so that's how things already operate. And then some of that is done in partnership with the Agency of Education when we're seeing early care and education delivered by public schools um, Mm. through Act 166, that sort of pre-K money that we've talked about before. Yeah. But so it's already regulated at the state level. And we already see significant subsidies that move from the federal government to the state and then we deliver to Vermonters. And those subsidies are paid directly to providers who apply on behalf of parents. Mm-hmm. And then for any difference in the amount that those providers, um, that the parents should be paying, the provider bills the parent for that difference, the copay. And so we already do have a state-run system. What's in the way that it's different from, which is very different from our public education system, which is this incredible mishmash of state and local control, um, but is almost entirely publicly administered. Right. Whereas the early care and education system, it's called a mixed delivery model. That's sort of the phrase that's um, used in the early care and education community. But that means that there are nonprofit providers, there are for-profit, I mean, you can call them for-profit providers, for-profit providers, it's usually like one person running what they call a small business who might hire two other people. Mm-hmm. They're not, I wouldn't say they're profiting particularly yeah. beyond paying their bills, maybe if they're lucky. Um, and then we have public, we have some public providers. And so mm-hmm. that's a really, that's a pretty huge difference between those two systems. Mm-hmm. I know, I feel sometimes we have in the state this, People talk about, oh, it, it's it's too state controlled or it's too local controlled or something. And I'm, I'm not sure that's always the right 
conversation. I, I feel sometimes the conversation really needs to be around, well, is this commingling working mm-hmm. between state and local control? And what systems better lend themselves to one or the other? Rather yeah, than I it really... all needs to be one way or all needs to be the other. I'm going to take a picture of you. Oh, why, thank you. Um, I <laughs> didn't... Um, you know, I learned recently about how tax sales um, are like incredibly differently administered and almost motivated and incentivized from town to town. Did you say tag or tax? Tax. Tax. Tax sales. I was hoping that's what you meant. <laughs> yeah. No, not tag sales. Tax sales. I mean, maybe tax sales are different. I haven't looked into that. But tax sales. And just like that kind of blows me away and makes me really uncomfortable. Um, because it's an access to justice thing, I think, in a lot of ways. It's a really different um, a different experience of justice with regards to debt. Yeah. And that makes me super uncomfortable. And I think sometimes our public education system, with the way it's essentially under a state funding mechanism, but local control, really takes away from equity of opportunity Mm-hmm. between you know some kids living in one community and kids living in another community mm-hmm. and my understanding is that under act 46 the hope was that would be a little more equalized and act 46 happened before my time in the legislature but um I, i'm not sure thing. why we haven't ever made conscious decisions about what is state and what is local it's just an yeah yeah that is a good way of phrasing it well and when it comes to, I, I know some folks in my community are probably gripping their, their hearts at this moment as I say this. I sometimes feel with education funding particularly, given that there is so much mandated at the federal level mm-hmm. of what needs to happen, there's so much mandated at the state level, I almost feel sometimes it's almost unfair to expect the local community to navigate all that. It's I, a lot. It's a lot. And actually, one of the pieces of like details of legislation that um, the chair of my committee and I have been talking about together is how do we get technical assistance to towns and schools so that they can actually navigate this really intense federal funding landscape that we are thrusting upon them? Yeah. Um, and I think that's really an opportunity to talk about other forms of technical assistance regarding navigating regulations and funding that we have not offered before um, mm-hmm. because we do. We have this system of, you know, a lot of federal control, a decent amount of state control, and often very little capacity on the local level. Yeah, because you really want our, we want our teachers to be teaching. Yes, we do. Is really what we want them to put their time to. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So if you don't mind... This is a little bit of a, a, a curveball, and I'm, I'm looking, we have about 10 minutes left. I, this isn't necessarily on your list of priorities, but some of what you've said really makes me think about the gig economy mm-hmm. and how I think in many ways Vermont's always had a gig economy, better mm-hmm. or worse. Absolutely. Is, and you've been kind of looking at the gig economy and, and workers' mm-hmm. protections. Is there anything about that happening this session or... Anything you yeah. can kind of add there? Um, as you might have seen from my newsletter, Olga, it's already much too long. 
um, by any standard of how people are supposed to write things like that for people to actually consume them. I was excited that an intern from UVM that I'm working with figured out how to hyperlink a table of contents at the top for easier surfability through the document, but it's still pretty out of control. And um, doesn't give space for me to be sort of talking about like top caucus priorities and my like um, philosophies that I'm trying to carry through. And things around the gig economy really are. So there are some protections that we're talking about about the gig economy. Um, the whole universe of delivered meals um, is really deeply unregulated right now in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be some legislation to regulate that. Um, Short-term rentals is um, a project that I have a bill in for that some work is going to be done to regulate. Um, that's become quite contentious in Brattleboro lately. Yes. And um, I'd, for I, I'd forgotten that, I think, willfully. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and then there are some bills in House General that are much more sort of explicit worker protection bills regarding the gig economy that I'm not sure have a, that I don't think have a very good chance of moving in the context of all the COVID recovery work that they're doing. But I do, again, think that these social infrastructure pieces are the best protection we can give gig workers um, because it means that you, you know, if you have health insurance that actually works, that's not tied to your job. Right. If you have childcare that works and is subsidized sufficiently, that if you experience massive changes in your income from week to week or month to month, and that we're designing those programs and the eligibility for those programs in a way that actually meets um, how much Vermonters' incomes might change over the course of a year. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. And as we have um, more legislators who are joining the legislature who have who have navigated those experiences themselves, the more I think we can develop legislation that people sort of remember to ask that question. Like, mm. oh, maybe we can't do, you know, a lot of economic services programs, for instance, you have to submit pay stubs. And if you don't have pay stubs, it becomes incredibly complicated. Yeah. Um, but I think we're starting to do a better job of naming those things. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's fantastic as someone who, like many Vermonters, works multiple jobs mm -hmm. and freelance jobs. I've often felt frustrated coming up against state systems that my work life is very complex and always changing. Mm -hmm. And yet these systems have very definite boxes you have to tick. And it's like, yeah, but I, I don't see me in these boxes. Mm -hmm. And if, if we, it, again, it's creating systems for what we have and not just what we think we have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's not just a problem because it makes it really hard for you to get access to what you need to meet your needs, which is a huge problem. But I think it's also hard because when we don't feel seen by our government, we become more disconnected from our government and we like might feel like we're not making the right choices in our lives. And um, even though I don't know if they were even choices to begin with to have three jobs, right? <laughs> and so I think the more we can develop these programs and services that really meet people where they are, I think the more participation we'll have in this democracy project. Yeah. 
what that echoes for me is going back to a conversation I had with Meg Mott several weeks ago, who's she's been on this show uh, several times. But in a side conversation, we talked about one of the things that democracy really needs is for people to believe in it. And mm-hmm. that includes believing in the government and believing in its systems. Yeah. Because if you don't, there's no reason to follow them. Mm-hmm. And I, I always find it so fascinating that need of almost, a, well, basically a sense of trust mm-hmm. between government and, and the public. Yeah. And how if they're not working together. Mm-hmm. I mean, why would you participate if you don't trust that your voice is actually going to make a difference? Yeah. Yeah. Um, shout out to another podcast, Rumble Strip with Erica Heilman did a great episode on town meeting. Yes. That I highly recommend everyone listen to. It was a joy. And I highly recommend that that podcast episode was used as a touchstone for a Vermont humanities program. Oh. That was called Just Town Meeting. And no, it was called Can Town Meeting Bridge Divides. So that is up on the it's either the Humanities website or the Vermont Civics Collaborative website. But that was Fun. also a really great conversation. So geekiness abounds. Mm-hmm. Don't you love yeah. it? I mean, there's so many people thinking about these issues. It gives me a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. We are just about out of time, Emily. Is there any thoughts you want to leave listeners with? You know, this moment, which... Um, I'm going to wax a little too poetic here in the evening, but that's what we've been doing this whole episode. So yeah. So outside I can feel the edge of spring, Mm. you know, there's like the red tips on the trees a little bit. I heard a rumor. There were some crocuses at the post office in Saxton's river. I don't actually believe it, but I did hear that. That's worth Um, a field trip. Daylight savings is next week. Mm Mm-hmm. And so there's all that nascent seasonal possibility that Vermonters really thrive on, sugaring season. There's this incredible sense that sort of democracy is a little bit, has a new chance, a fresh chance Mm -hmm. with this federal administration. And I think that we feel that, um, you know, COVID, we might maybe see the end point of COVID or that there's some other side of whatever this phase is in. I think there's so much potential right now. And that's all in the midst of sort of legislative crossover, which is all about potential and then sort of, um, but the other side of that is there's a knowledge of what's lost. Mm -hmm. You know, which bills didn't make it. And um, the folks that we're not gonna see again, who we lost during this time. Some of whom we couldn't say goodbye to. Mm -hmm. and I just hope we can take our time Mm -hmm. um, and learn the lessons, both for what they mean for public policy and what they mean for community relationships and what they sort of mean for each of us as we think about emerging into the world in a slightly different way. I love that. I think that should be our toast to seeing the possibilities and taking our time moving forward. Here, here. 
Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode. You can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at 2 p.m. on Fridays on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Facebook and iTunes. And Emily, where can people find you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org where they can find my email addresses, my phone number, my physical mailing address, as well as information to connect to my social media accounts and my weekly community conversation every Sunday at 11 a.m. via the Zoom.